0: For those of you who know me, um, you know I'm not a pastor. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a, um, I'm, I'm really just a mom and a wife. And so I just ask for your grace this morning because what I have to share is just what's on my heart and what I feel God has put on my heart to share with you. And so um, just let's go with it. Um, I'm probably going to need my glasses occasionally, so I won't be able to see any of you, but I will be able to see what's in front of me. (sighs) Um, How many of you were here a couple of weeks ago when Dr. Rich stood up here um, and he spoke about the heart? Were you here? Yeah, I was here, too. No, actually, I was downstairs, so I listened to it later online. Well, um, I decided that today we're going to do a kind of a continuation of that same theme. So you see it up on the screen. I can see it back there. I'm titling today, Matters of the Heart, Part 2. So um, Dr. Rich challenged all of us with a couple of questions, really important questions, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the questions he asked was, what are you going to allow yourself to be controlled by? Do Remember that? And um, he referenced the passage from First Kings 18, where Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. And um, there was a very interesting verse in that whole passage that he brought to our attention. Because it says in there, um, I believe it's verse 30, And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. In other words, Elijah, before he could offer the sacrifice, had to repair the altar so that it would be in a condition that could receive the sacrifice. And Dr. Rich then went on to talk about how in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the um, altar of the Lord was the physical altar, the stone altar, and they were required to put animal sacrifices on it as an atonement for sin. But you and I both know that we're not under the old covenant anymore. We are now under the new covenant. And Jesus paid the atonement for our sin. Amen. And so the altar is not a physical altar any longer. The altar is our hearts. Yeah. And so I'm not going to reteach all of whatever everything that Dr. Rich taught us that morning, but he he told us how important it is to guard and take care of and protect our hearts. And it's only when our hearts are completely, completely dedicated to God that we can possibly love one another, that we can possibly love our spouse, our children, our, our neighbors. Um, and he went through f- different ways to guard your heart. And he kind of ended his morning with another question. And he said, Is the love of Christ preeminent in my heart? Um, this has been a question that has been really driven me for many years. So, what I'd like to do now is, I'd like to take just a few minutes and I'd kind of like to share um, my personal journey of the heart. Where I started and where God has brought me and why that's relevant and what I think it has to say to us this morning Um, About 21 years ago when Brian and I were a little younger We um, we were had been married several years and and we uh, were going to a wonderful church in Jamestown. It was a Bible-believing church. It was a gospel-preaching church. We had three boys, um, three biological boys. And, man, they were awesome kids. You know, I, I know I probably am biased, but we, I just, I really liked, I loved my boys. Not, I used to just love them. I liked them. I actually liked Brian, too, which was a good thing. But... But we were very active in our church, and we were in church leadership there. Um, and I, I have to say that I, I, I had a really good theology. You know, I pretty much could answer all of the Sunday school questions correctly. I pretty much knew what I thought I believed, and I, I was pretty good um, for a while until, you know, life happens and Brian and I experienced a fire, not a fire in our home. We didn't lose our home, but we lost his business. Um, My father suffered a major stroke and was never the same after that and I watched him over years, many years. I I lost my father like by inches. Um, And that was, my gosh, I'm gonna cry. That was that was very hard for me. And then Brian's younger sister, was only 33 at the time developed lung cancer and we were watching her go through a lot of stuff and so somehow my theology was rocky my wonderful Sunday school answers were rocky and I Brian and I began to sit in the pews on Sunday mornings because we had pews And we would look at each other, and we would say, is this it? Is this all there is? We started needing more. We started needing more. And so we began to experiment with other churches. And um, about 21 years ago, Brian and I walked through the doors here. This was a brand new building. It had only been here, I don't know, a few months. And I have to tell you, and I, you know, those of you who know me, you know that I'm not overly melodramatic. I don't exaggerate. I'm pretty even keeled most of the time. But I have to tell you, when we walked through those doors, God wrecked me the very first night I was here. And I say night because it was a Saturday night and Rejoice was here and there was lots of stuff going on. I was a puddle on the floor because God grabbed out and he got my heart and he didn't let go. I tell you, like the first, at least the first year when I was here, I was a puddle on the floor 90% of the time. I was up here at these steps right here. Ah! I was just... I was a glorious wreck. And I say a glorious wreck because God was doing heart surgery on me. Totally doing heart surgery on me. And he was rearranging my furniture. Man, oh man, oh man, was he rearranging my furniture. And so I was getting, even in the midst of my... I was... I wanted to learn. I wanted to know more. And so I dove into my Bible like I had never dove before. Because I was looking for life. I was looking for life. And I read, and I read, and I read. And I I especially... I mean, I read everything. I read everything. But I especially read the red letters. You know what I'm talking about? I especially read... What Jesus had to teach and what Jesus had to say. And my, the, the topic that really grabbed at me was love. You, know, what was this? I thought I knew what love was. It was out the window. I, I, I didn't know what love was, and, I, and so I wanted to know. And so being you, know, I used to be a teacher, actually a reading specialist, so I read and I study. And I would, I learned about different forms of biblical love. And can we just have, yes, four forms of biblical love. So, scholars don't all agree on how many forms of biblical love there really are. Some say four, some say seven, some say as many as twelve. I'm going to talk about four this morning, because that's what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Four Loves. So, I want to just take a minute and I want to talk about these loves because they're important. We got it. So, the first form of love is eros love, which is the physical, romantic love much like you see in the Hallmark movies at the end. It it is totally wrapped up in our emotions and in our attractions and our physical attraction. And the second form of love that I want to talk about is storge. So this Greek word describes family love, the affectionate bond that develops naturally between parents and children and brothers and sisters. Again, this is a love that's really wrapped up in my emotions. Even, you know, if you grow up and you still don't have a whole lot in common with your brothers and sisters, even if you kind of, you know, your mom and your dad kind of, oh my gosh. You still you love them. They are your family. It's a very strong bond. The third kind of love is philos love. And philo is the love between friends. This type of love is usually characterized by shared interests and values. You know, if you look at biblical love, Jonathan and his love with for David, you look at um, Jesus and the love that he had with Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. It is a love that I have with people that I connect with. But the love that really, really got me was agape love. Because agape love is in a class by itself. It's not attached necessarily to my emotions. Because agape love... And this is the love that Jesus spoke of almost exclusively. It is selfless. It's unconditional. It seeks the greatest good of the other. When we love with this kind of love, we're seeking to give of ourselves regardless of whether the other person deserves it. Agape is not born just out of my emotions, my feelings, familiarity, or attraction, but from the will That's right. and as a choice. And it requires something of me. Mm-hmm. It requires faithfulness, commitment, and sacrifice without expecting anything in return. That's right. So... The first few years that Brian and I were here at Praise, I, I was really, I was, and I, I was, I, these things intrigued me, you know, it, they totally intrigued me. And to the point where, and you know, when we, when we worship here together, it's like, yes, God, come change me. Make me new. Yes, God, do whatever it is you need to do in me. Do whatever it is you need to do in me so that I can get this. So that I can get this agape love. Because you know what? I'm, I'm struggling with it. Well, God took me kind of at my word. Because about 19 years ago, it was 2002, I was working at the time. I walked uh, into work one morning, into the secretary's office, and I found that one of my students was going to be removed from the school. He and his little brother and his younger sister lived in a foster family in Frewsburg, or with a foster family in Frewsburg, and the foster family had requested that they be removed from the home. They were too much. They couldn't couldn't deal with it any longer. And, um, as I said, it was one of my students, although I didn't have a regular classroom because I was a reading teacher. I had many students from many different classrooms. This happened to be a little boy that I was working with in first grade. His name was Devon. Cute little kid. Oh, my gosh. Cute as a button. Some of you remember him. So I left the office. And I began to walk down the hallway to my classroom. Well, I have not ever heard the audible voice of God. But this was the closest thing I've ever experienced. Because as I was walking down the hall, it was like God was laying out two paths in front of me. One path was the path that I was on, and it was a good path. And, and God said to me, Donnie, you can stay on this path, and it will be fine. It, it's good. I'm watching Brian, and he's crying. Um, but there's another path. And this path includes three more children. Yeah, oh boy. By the time I got to my classroom, I was shaking like a leaf. The tears were coming down. And I, I was like, ah! I, I was beside myself. So I picked up my phone and I called Brian. And I said, Brian! You won't believe what I think God is just saying to me. And I explained it kind of like in those turn- to- that tone, right? Yeah. Well, I'll never forget Brian's response to me. As I'm standing there, and I'm shaking, and I'm just like, very calmly, very calmly, he said to me, well, Donna, if that's where you feel God is asking us to do, then we got to start walking in that direction. And we have to trust that God is going to open the doors that he wants open, and he's going to close the doors that need to be closed. Well, that steadied me. And I'm like, wow, that was profound. <laughs> that, 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 OK, I can, I can run with that. I, I, we can do this. So I, at the time, it was the intercom, if you remember intercoms. I got on my intercom, called my, pr- my principal, and said, I have to come see you sometime today. Well, to make a very long story short, this was a Monday. Brian and I weren't foster parents. We'd not had any experience as foster parents. We had three wonderful boys. But Thursday, four days later, Brian and I picked up Devon, who was seven at the time, his little brother Tyrell, who was six, who I kind of knew because he was in... because he was in kindergarten. <laughs> and their little sister, Ziana, who was not quite three, and whom we had never met. And we brought him home, to our home. Can I tell you, God was taking me back to school. I, you know, I would like to stand up here and say to you that God miraculously filled me with this incredible love for these children, and that all the problems were solved, and it was, you know, <laughs> dancing through the, you know, you see the pictures, you dancing through the fields of flowers? Uh, no. Not even close. I thought I knew what love was. I didn't have a clue. And if I wanted God to teach me more about agape love, he said, okay, you're on. This was 19 years ago. And can I tell you that love has been a process? And I've been incredibly bad. But despite me, I've watched God do miracles in those children. And I could spend a lot of time talking about those miracles and the transformations that I saw happen, despite me. Oh, please believe me. Despite me. You've got to know that there were were so many days that I was afraid to go out my bedroom window in the morning. Or my bedroom window. I wanted to go out my bedroom window. (laughs) I was afraid to open the door because of what I knew was waiting for me on the other side. You don't know how many mornings I just sprawled on the floor. And I said, God, I can't do this. I can't do this one more day. I can't meet the needs. Because you have to understand, these were profoundly wounded children. You know, they were adorable, but oh my gosh. Their behaviors, their issues, the things that they needed... We're not cute by any stretch of the imagination, and um, I have been on a journey of learning more about love ever since. You know, the whole concept of love has really gripped me, and like I say, I've I've read the um, the red, letter, the red words, the red letters of God. And I've read the things that Jesus had to say about agape love, that agape love. For you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And, and you're probably familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus told a story about, you know, who, who, who are we to love? The robber who was beaten, and who, who was robbed and beaten and left for dead. And who passes him by? But the priest. The next one to pass him by, the Levite, leaders of the church. And who was it who finally bent down, tended to his wounds, and, and took him to a place where he could, he could heal? It was a Samaritan, the enemy, somebody who shouldn't even have been talking to him, much less caring about his needs. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Ouch. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this you will know that you are my disciples if you love. One another. Think about that for a minute. Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love you and me? He died. He withstood a horrible, horrible death at the hands of the Roman soldiers. He stood silent as he was beaten and mocked. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. Agape love is something I don't know about you guys, but I have a hard time with it. I don't have a hard time with taking in God's love for me, but somehow it gets stuck Somehow, it gets stuck in there. And it's not so hard for me to love somebody I like. It's not so hard for me to love somebody I agree with. It's not so hard for me to love somebody who looks like me. It's not so hard for me to love most anybody, as long as they don't offend me. Yeah, that's right. It's a whole lot harder for me to love, really, truly love, the people I don't like, the people who offend me, the people who are different from me, the people who don't look and sound the way I look and sound. You know, fast forward to 2020. I don't think that last February, as we sat here, we knew what was in store for us. Didn't have a clue. How many of us have felt our love assaulted this year? How many of us have seen fear, anger, dissension, like we've never seen before? How many of us have seen things that we never thought we would see or experienced things that we never thought we would experience? How many of us think that we just might, just might be in the last days? Jesus had some things to say about the last days. When his disciples asked him, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus said, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Have we seen those? No, yeah. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And here's the kicker. Here's what gets me. And because, of lawless, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The agape of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. And I'm like, wait a minute. If our love if so many if the love is going to grow cold, if agape is going to grow cold, how am I going to endure? How is the gospel of the kingdom going to be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then then the end My, my cry this year has been, Lord, how do we respond to all of this? How do I respond to all of this? How do I guard against my growing capacity for love? How do I guard against it growing cold? How do I endure? And how, how will I preach? The gospel of the kingdom. God has dropped a couple of words into my spirit. And when I first heard them, I'm like, "Uh, no, God, nope, I'm not going to use those words because they're buzzwords and because people are going to throw rotten tomatoes at me and they're going to haul me off the platform. Because the first word that he dropped in my spirit was insight. The second word that he dropped into my spirit was inspire. And he said, Donna, you really, you really know, need to know the difference between these two words. And so I went to Webster's and I looked them up. And what I found there was really interesting to me, really interesting. The word incite, according to Webster's, is to stimulate, to provoke to action, to goad. It's driven and it's fueled by my emotion. Inspire, on the other hand, is to guide, affect, or arouse by divine influence, to stimulate to creativity or action. And here's something I hadn't even thought about. Inspire means to inhale. To breathe life into. And I'm like, wow, that's that's really interesting because you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the Hebrew word ruach that appears over 400 times in the Old Testament. And it is translated as either breath, Wind or spirit. The phrase Rawak Ha Kodesh is the Holy Spirit. Inspiration is Holy Spirit breathed, fueled by a love that is bigger than my emotions. And it is a choice born of divine influence. And here's what I feel like God has been saying to me. He's been saying, Donna, you've got to understand the difference between these two words. And you've got to understand that the enemy has unleashed a full-on assault in the world. The enemy, his, his intent is to steal, kill, and destroy through chaos and turmoil. His goal is to incite fear, anger, hatred, dissension. The airwaves are his playground. I don't know about you, but from the time I get up in the morning until the time I go to bed, I am bombarded with voices and with images that scream for my attention. Do you know what I'm talking about? And I look to Jesus. And I had to, th- I had to realize that Jesus consistently, consistently resisted incitement. And he insisted upon inspiration. You know, Jesus was born into a political powder, powder keg. The Jews had been oppressed by the Roman government for for many, many years. And they were looking to their Messiah to save them. They were looking to their Messiah to be a political king who who would free them from the oppression of the Roman government. But Jesus knew what his true mission really was and what he was born to accomplish. He knew who the enemy really was, and he would not ever, ever allow himself to be drawn into the wrong fight. If I'm going to move forward, and if I'm to have wisdom and discernment in the next season, people, we need to know what the difference is between these two words. We need to know that incitement seeks to inflame my emotions. Whereas inspiration is from the Lord. And it is God-breathed and it is outside my emotions. In fact, I'll say that it transcends my emotions. The next thing that I feel like God wants us to know, wants me to know, is what the mission really is. You know, all four of the Gospels record that when Jesus was about 30, he went to his cousin John, who recognized him as the Messiah, and he baptized him in the Jordan River. And all four Gospels tell us that the heavens opened, that the Holy Spirit came down in a dove, in, in the image of a dove, and that the voice of God could be heard audibly, saying, you are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. And we're told that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately was led into the desert. Immediately led into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. He had no food. He had no water. In one of the uh, Gospels it says he was with the beasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, Guess what Satan tried to do while he was in the wilderness? Satan tried to incite him. He tried to incite him to turn stone into bread so that he could eat. So he appealed to his physical weakness. He tried to incite him to establish his, his authority. Throw yourself down from this mountain and the angels will not even, they, they'll come and save you. Jesus said, no, you shall not test the Lord your God. And then Satan said, well, well, I could give you everything. I am the prince. I own everything that you see and I will give it to you. Funny. Jesus didn't contradict him. He just said, get behind me. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he resisted the incitement of Satan from day one. And if you read about his ministry, if you read about his words, the things that he did, he pretty much turned the the ancient world upside down because what he taught was opposite of what makes sense to you and me. Consistently. Consistently. He consistently resisted people's attempts to incite. And he insisted upon inspiration instead. You know, I said, know what our mission is. After Jesus got out of, after he left the desert, it says that he left the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he almost immediately went to Nazareth And he went to the synagogue there, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And now I'm going to be reading out of Luke chapter 4. When he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And this is what he said, because this was his mission. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I propose to you that Jesus knew exactly what his mission was and he never wavered from it. I also want to tell you that I used to think that was my mission. Jesus, if it's your mission, it's my mission. But I was wrong. Because my mission implies that it's to be accomplished in my strength and in my power. And if one thing I have learned, it is I don't have the strength, and I don't have the power. There's only one who does. And so that brings me to the next point. I need to know the source of true power. You know, the disciples just didn't get it. They kept saying things to Jesus, dumb things, like, Lord, is it now that you're going to, you know... Are you going to usher in your kingdom? Are you going to become the king now? Are you going to free us? Are you going to save us? And Jesus said, how long am I going to have to? (laughs) No, no. I'm pretty convinced that in the church we talk too much. And we certainly fight too much. Consider Peter, kind of a master at incitement. Now, Peter was, Jesus, I love you with my whole heart. You're the Messiah, and I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. I will fight for you. What does Jesus say to him? Peter, Peter before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to cut and run. The love that you have for me, it's not going to carry you. It's not going to carry you. Out of the original 12 disciples, with the exception of Judas, who was his betrayer, and John, who was the only disciple to go to the cross and watch the crucifixion, The other 10, they ran. Whatever love they felt they had for Jesus wasn't enough. Didn't carry him. I've been learning, folks, that the love I'm capable of in my own humanity isn't enough. It's just not enough. And it wasn't until after three days, and Jesus came out of the grave, presented himself in bodily form to his disciples, that they realized that their love hadn't been enough either. Peter's restoration. If you know the story at the um, Sea of Galilee, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agapeo me, which is the verb form of agape? And Peter couldn't even look him in the eyes. Jesus, you know, I phileo you. He knew that was the only capacity love that he really had. Jesus asked him again, Peter. Do you agapeo me? Peter said to him, Lord, I phileo you. A third time, Jesus finally said, Peter, do you phileo me? He said, yes, Lord, you know what I do. And then he said, feed my sheep. You see, The love that you think you're capable of, the love I think I'm capable of, this season that we're going into, it's not enough. We have to tap into a love that is bigger than us. We have to tap into a power that's bigger than mine. You know, I used to think that agape love was so hard. That I had to work for it. That I had to earn it. That I had to strive after it. That I had to somehow, somehow convince God to to let me have a glimpse of it. But you know what I've been learning? I've been learning that it's not about the kind of love that I can work up. It's about what I'm willing to lay down. Amen. I've learned that a true agape love is not earned, it's a gift. And it's not my job to somehow qualify for it. It's my job to receive it. Church, whatever God is going to ask us to do in this next season, I'd better be in a place where I'm not trying to work it up, where I'm not trying to love it up, where I'm not trying to convince anybody, but where I'm able to receive something that's bigger than me. I believe that that is a call on this house. I believe, and there are prophetic words that I could show you from the very beginnings of PF, that God has said, I am going to give you my heart. I believe that you and I have a call on our lives, corporately, individually, and in this region. And it is to carry the heart of God because it is the only thing that trans that transcends our emotions it is the only thing that brings transformation to people the transformative power of the love of Jesus Christ is available but it's i have to introduce them to the risen jesus does that make sense am, am i making any kind of sense because i feel now like i'm kind of rambling I need to know the difference between incitement and inspiration. I need to not allow, I, I need to be able to transcend my emotions so that I can tap into something that's bigger than me. I need to know what the mission is, and I say the mission because it's not just my mission. I, I have no power in and of me to make anything happen. It's mission of Jesus Christ that I partner with, that I partner with. And lastly, I need to know my positioning. And, you know, strange, I, there's been this song kind of running through my head now for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I have to warn you, it's not a Christian song. I mean, and there are lots of really awesome Christian songs out there, but this isn't. This is not a Christian song. It's not performed by a Christian artist. It's not remotely Christian. But it does help me paint a word picture in my head, and in my heart, of where I need to be positioned. Because you know, I look at the world around me right now. How many of you feel like sometimes? There is a, a, a huge body of water, and it's filled with sharks who are ripping and tearing at one another, and they're intent on destroying. And what, the, what, what Satan wants me to do is he wants me to, I'm coming, and leap in to the body of water and join them. That's not where my position is supposed to be. I am not supposed to make, let my emotions and my offenses and my feelings and my opinions and my whatever, my differences, make me jump into the chaos and jump into the turmoil. And so I, I, I've talked long enough. I, I don't know if I really made any sense. But I'd like to end by playing this non Christian song because it gives me a mental picture of where I feel God wants his church right now, where he wants me right now. So, could you play this very portion of this non Christian song? Some, somebody here needs to hear these words. I don't know why.
1: It beautiful. I will lay. <laughs>